You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 7th day of June 2013. Welcome to episode 270 of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions, Peaceful Parenting. It's something that's been long remarked on and long lamented, that the problems facing society today are easy to identify, but the solutions are much more difficult to pin down. We can see a lot of the problems that manifest themselves in society today, and the root causes of them in violence, aggression, irrationality in much of the public. But what is the solution to this? We have been conditioned our entire lives to believe that the only possible solutions for social ills and social problems come from the arena of politics, and that everything has a political solution. But what if I were to tell you that these types of problems of aggression and irrationality that we find amongst so much of the public in this day and age does not find its solution in the political arena, that it does not require marching on Washington or rallying people together in some sort of big battle against the forces of evil or killing a bunch of people overnight that will somehow magically transform the world into one of peace and harmony, but that in fact, the solution starts at home. And what if I were to tell you that one relatively simple change could be made in households across the country and around the world overnight that in the course of a generation would change the course of human history? Canadian researchers claim they have new evidence that supports ending a practice that has already become socially unacceptable, spanking or hitting a child. They claim it can have a lasting impact. They reviewed data from roughly 35,000 people and found that those who were spanked had between 2 and 5% increased likelihood of having a mental disorder and a 4 to 7% greater chance of having a personality disorder. Does this close the door on whether spanking is effective or not? I think it does close the door, Ryan. First of all, it was a very large study and put in a very reputable journal. And so to me, that says that it's something for all of us to really pay attention to. In addition, all of my experience, the literature I've read said that spanking and hitting just isn't necessary for discipline. Can spanking cause mental illness? Well, researchers in Canada say physical punishment is linked to mood disorders, substance and personality disorders. Now, I got to tell you, this is not uh, a mystery to those of us that work with people um, who have been affected by these sorts of behaviors from their parents. Uh, There's a 100% probability if somebody gets to me that they had childhood trauma of some type. And there's just no doubt that physical punishment affects how our brains develop. It's not open for debate for people that work with children and work with trauma survivors. It's just the way it is. That's right. Last year, a Canadian study made waves by demonstrating that those who had experienced early childhood violence uh, of any form had a clearly increased risk of class one mental disorders. And this is not simply spanking or corporal punishment in the sense that we tend to think of it, but even such things as pushing and shoving any sort of physical trauma and violence in early childhood was a risk factor for increased uh, likelihood of uh, the onset of mental illness in adulthood. And this 
study certainly did make waves, as you can see from the clips provided and many others that are available online, and it set off a large debate in the summer of last year about whether spanking was violence and whether it was acceptable for children. And the tenor of that debate was very much centered around the premise that this study was a one-of-a-kind, that really it was the only study that indicated anything of the sort, that it was still very tentative, that this was just one research team that had found this one finding, and that there was much more work to be done. But in reality, there has been a lot of studies that have proven all sorts of correlations between early childhood trauma and violence and all sorts of problems in adulthood, from the increased risk of antisocial behavior to criminality to obesity to chronic depression to alcoholism to drug abuse to uh, early teenage pregnancy, etc., etc. Pretty much every type of, of social ill that we can think of has an increased likelihood in the case where uh, children have been exposed to er a traumatic early childhood abuse of any kind. And uh, that includes such things as spanking, which is still a very prevalent uh, form of of discipline in some countries, like the United States, where it is employed by 80 to 90% of parents. But it is outlawed in 32 countries around the world. And I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can find out uh, which countries those might be and find out more about the campaign to end corporal punishment around the globe. But again, it is important to note that there have been many studies that have been drawing this statistical correlation out for a long time and have been showing that uh, many of the social ills that we have been trained to equate only and 100% with economic or political problems, in fact, have problems that are much more deep-seated in the childhood of the people involved in those, in those problems. And this is something that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people to deal with because, of course, it goes to the core of who they are as human beings, how they were raised as children, and how they choose to raise their own children. It's a deeply personal thing, and no one wants to reevaluate their own life or the way that they've raised their children in the light of this type of empirical evidence. But if we are going to be rational individuals that are driven by evidence, then we have to take a look at it. So I would very much recommend that people take a look at a very important video series that was put together by Stefan Molyneux of Free Domain Radio a couple of years ago uh, called the Bomb in the Brain series. It is available from his website. Of course, I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can follow it and go there directly to watch this presentation. But it goes through a lot of this empirical evidence, the studies, the statistical correlations, uh, and and how that all uh, all plays out into the types of problems that we see so prevalent in our society today. And it is a very well laid out series. So again, I will urge you to go and take a look at it. But right now, why don't we listen to a little bit of an interview that I conducted earlier this week with Stefan Molyneux about this very topic and about the empirical evidence that shows that early childhood trauma and violence of all sorts does contribute to uh, problems in later life. And this is part of a longer conversation that we had. The audio, the full audio of the interview is now up on my website, and the full video has been posted to the uh, Stefan Molyneux YouTube channel, StefBot. So I will put the link for both of those in the show notes for today's episode. And let's listen to a little bit of our conversation where Stefan outlined some of that empirical evidence for the co correlation between early childhood violence and trauma, and later adult problems. If you want to improve the world, then you have to start with what is. Uh, and what is is that, you know, significant majorities of children are going through really difficult stuff. Uh, and uh, some of that we recognize 
as difficult. Uh, obviously, you know, children who are sexually abused, emotionally abused, physically abused, uh, and and verbally abused, and so on, they are going to have trauma, and we understand that that is going to have fundamental effects on their brain development. Uh, but um, there's other things which are a little harder for people to see because they remain so much the norm, such as spanking. You know, 80 to 90 percent of parents are still spanking their children. Spanking is considered to be a legitimate form of quote loving discipline for a lot of people, but it has objectively negative uh, results uh, for children's development. And something like public school uh, is something which uh, I would argue in the long run, once we compare, you know, genuine free range education methods for children where they have a say, they have a choice, uh, the putting them in public school where they're subject to a lot of peer trauma. You know, we, we look at sort of top down trauma from parents or teachers or or priests and so on or other caregivers to children. But peer trauma is also uh, quite significant. And whenever you cram a whole bunch of kids together, particularly in the same age category, you know, force them to go into a particular area and stay there in a not so quasi prison like environment, you're going to get that kind of horizontal peer on peer aggression. So childhood as it stands is obviously significantly better than it was in the past. Um, but it's still got a long way to go. And I think like all societies, we're tempted with the, well, we're done, you know, we, we've got the major stuff done and, you know, the major aspects of, of society are tidied up and cleared away. Uh, I would sort of argue not. So, so very briefly, 17 or 18,000 people have been tracked through this Kaiser Permanente study. And uh, what it, and, and these are people that is not a cross-representative section of, of humanity. Uh, these are generally rich, generally white or middle class and above professionals, usually people who have uh, signed up for fairly expensive private health care in the U.S. So these are not uh, ghetto kids. These are not street people. These are not poor people. These are not trailer park people. These are pretty well off people. And what happened was uh, Dr. Filiti and others developed what's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire. Uh, and it's a questionnaire. Uh, it's on the videos. Uh, uh, it's linked under the videos that I mentioned earlier. People can go through this. And it's like, you know, uh, were you beaten? Were you uh, assaulted? Were you verbally abused? Uh, was a family member in prison or dealing with addiction? All this kind of stuff. And they tracked the uh, development and health impacts of uh, early childhood abuse uh, on people. And they found that it was inc incredibly correlated. So, for instance, it's almost a 50% rise in the incidence of cancer among people who've been abused. Uh, it's the idea being the stress uh, hormone cortisol is very bad for, for you and in long doses and so on. And so there's is ischemic heart disease, diabetes, uh, smoking, early teen, uh, earlier teen pregnancies, uh, drug addictions, uh, alcoholism. All of these are highly correlated with, um, uh, with early childhood abuse. So you have a difficult childhood. It sets you up for a lot of problems uh, in, in your body. It also sets you up for a lot of problems in your brain. A study just came out that's not referenced in the this, this stuff I did a couple of years ago, which is kind of mind-blowing. So what they do is they've done scans of, um, uh, I think this was women, who had, and they ask, you know, did you have abuse? What kind of abuse did you have? They can actually target in the brain and see where the deficiency is occurring based upon the type of abuse that is occurring. So there's an area in the brain which represents genitalia and women who are sexually abused have a thinning out of the neurons and the activity in that particular area. For people who are physically abused, it's in another place and people who are emotionally abused, it's in another place, which is really quite astounding. I mean, it's like a scan for abuse. So somebody, somebody could not tell you that they were abused. You'd be able to scan their brain and see not only that they were abused to a fair degree of likelihood, but also what type of abuse they had experienced. And the theory seems to be that when you have something like child rape, you have this uh, overwhelming um, stimulation of the brain and the brain shuts itself down in that area.
you know, sort of like a fuse, you know, it's like it's too overwhelming. And then what happens is it shields experiences or, or development around that particular neural pathway or that set of or that cluster of neural pathways. And then you end up with this sort of avoidance. Um, and this is something that can produce actual amnesia later on. I mean, according to studies, uh, women who were known to be raped as children, like they they went to hospital, they had rape kits done, uh, you know, there was no question that they'd been raped. 40% of them in their 30s claimed to have absolutely no memory of this whatsoever. And these weren't little babies. These were like sort of 8, 10, 12-year-olds. So it has a very distortionary effect on the brain. And the last thing I'll sort of mention is, you know, the neofrontal cortex is the seat of our higher reasoning, uh, fails to develop in, in significant ways when children are exposed to abuse. What does develop is the, you know, the amygdala, the sort of fight or flight mechanism. Uh, and so when people go through this kind of abuse, when you think of, you know, some guy who's in a bar who's really touchy, you know, if he if he thinks you look at him the wrong way, he's just going to start being really aggressive. They, um, they, the fight or flight mechanism is highly developed, uh, overdeveloped, and the, the sort of restraining mechanism uh, of the neofrontal cortex, which intercepts the impulses of the base brain fight or flight mechanism and attempts to dampen them down, and you really only have about a third to a half a second to intercept those impulses, that is really atrophied. And so you get these hair-trigger guys who are very aggressive, very violent, who take you know what they call in the hood, you know, he didn't give me respect, you know, I need respect, he didn't give me juice. Uh, these are the guys who've gone through significant abuse and remain hair trigger and really quite primitive. And if they're very prevalent in a society, people mistake that for human nature and say, well, we can't be free because there are all these crazy people around. It's like, well, that really does come specifically from experiences as children. So I think for my particular approach, and I think, again, I try to be as, as, as sort of scientifically validated as possible, there's not a lot of cure for these kinds of things. Doesn't mean people can't improve. I mean, I had a difficult childhood. I went to therapy and I think I've made great progress. So you can, it's very expensive. I dropped like over $20,000 on therapy. Uh, so that's not available for everyone to have the time and the money to be able to pursue it. Um, and uh, so I really look at prevention uh, more more so than cure. And that involves this, this beautiful parenting thing. Once again, Stefan Molyneux of freedomainradio.com. Well, once the empirical cards have been laid out on the table, and we know the statistical and scientific studies and evidence demonstrating the link between early childhood abuse, trauma, violence, and corporal punishment, and the problems that develop later in life as a result of that early childhood experience, then we really have a choice to make, whether or not to follow the evidence, to be rational, and to try to implement that in our own lives by not setting the example for young children that violence is the answer to any of life's problems, or to perpetuate the problems, perpetuate the cycle of violence, and to contribute to the, the ongoing decay of society. It really is in terms that are that stark and that are that obvious for those who have examined the empirical evidence so it really does come down to a matter of personal choice, and it is a choice that people make each and every day whether or not they are going to try to resolve the problems that they may be having at home with their children by recourse to violence and irrationality and senseless uh, punishment as a means to uh, get children to do what you want, or if there will be an attempt to do a, uh, something different, something that should not be radical, but unfortunately is seen by our society as radical, and that is peaceful parenting. 
parenting without recourse to violence, parenting where you treat children as rational beings that are capable, capable of rationality and who are ultimately going to be, uh, are going to grow up in an environment in which they are subjected to senseless violence and beatings as a, uh, as a result of their, their behavior, or they are not. And uh, it's a question of what they're going to learn from those early childhood experiences. Well, this of course raises the question of then, what is to be done? Specifically, what should be done in this form of parenting? But I think that that is an altogether too simplistic way to look at the problem, because it tends to make of parenting something that is a step-by-step -step guide to be implemented. In this case, do this. In this case, do this. Of course, it has to be dependent on the child, ch the child him or herself. Each individual child is an individual. Each individual parent is an individual, and those individuals are going to work and work together in very different ways, depending on those personalities and who those people are, just as every other two people on the planet have to find out what ways they can best interact with each other without recourse to violence and without recourse to, uh, to basically beating someone into submission, which is something that we demand and expect of the people around us in every other form of life, in every other, in every other walk of life, in every other situation we find ourselves in, but for some reason that rule isn't supposed to apply to our own flesh and blood. Well, uh, so then the question is, what is the prescription? What is to be done? And I, again, I don't think it's quite that simple. Uh, basically, what this is, is a prescription of what is not to be done. And there are many different ways that those parents-child uh, relationships can develop in the absence of violence and force and coercion. So this is something that I got into in great depth with Lorette Lynn of the Unplugged Mom radio show and uh, Unplugged Mom website at unpluggedmom.com. Of course, I'll put the link in the show notes. And we had an interview uh, last week where we talked about this in great detail. So I'll put the link into the audio of that interview. Let's take a look at some of that interview where we talked about some of these uh, questions and about what can and should and hopefully will be done in a society where people understand that parenting is about having a relationship with your child, not about trying to socially engineer them by violently beating them into submission. Um, again, for people who are hearing this for the first time, how would you describe what it is that you uh, do in terms of your parenting? What is it? What are you actually attempting to do if it's not discipline? I have a relationship with my children, and that doesn't mean that we're on the same a lot of people here have the relationship with the children and, and, and they think that it means that we're, uh, I guess you can say partners, and I, I don't think that's completely accurate either because the, we are their parents for a reason. Children are born children. They're born babies. And as you know, you have a, a one-month-old son, and it's just a, a matter of recognizing that we are responsible for imparting our wisdom and imparting our experience uh, and sharing that with the children to help them to help them navigate the world and to help guide them so there is a significant benefit to accepting that and embracing that as their parent and realizing that it's up to us to kind of help them have that safe experience through life until they do become adults so that's okay and i think we need to allow ourselves that but there is a, a, a way to do that without using force, without using violence. And I think that's where the battleground starts to get a little bit fuzzy because what we've done essentially is we've created this dichotomy or this false dichotomy, if you will, where we either feel like we're completely hands off and we let the children do whatever they want and we don't interfere at all, 
or we're authoritarian parents and that's not necessarily true you can still be very much in your very much involved in your children's lives you can still be that source of encouragement and that source of support and even strongly encourage certain decisions or certain behaviors or even to the point where we're protecting them from uh, known dangers and even allowing some dangers to happen allowing them to get hurt sometimes but you don't have to be completely hands-off. It can be a very peaceful environment. So the important point is to maintain a relationship with children. And that's what's important in my house. We have a relationship with each other. We have open communication. And the basis to every relationship, the very foundation of every relationship, whether it be with each other or with children, is communication. So I always make sure that I communicate with them. I never just say no because I said so. There's always a reason to back it up because no matter how young they are, they are still people and they deserve that. Now, when they're so young that they can't understand language, you wouldn't be saying no anyway. There wouldn't be any circumstance where you would, would you would, where you would really have to do that unless it's something very simple. But even for children very young and they're going to touch something that might hurt them and you say, no, don't touch that, you say, because it's hot or because it's sharp or no, don't go in the street because there are cars there and you have a conversation. Then as they get older, they're used to that. And by the time they're teenagers and they're hopefully intelligent, well-rounded, respectful people, because they've been treated with respect all their lives, you're able to have a reasonable conversation with them. And when some incident comes up, because teenagers always want to explore and experiment, you don't have to say, no, you can't go out with those people, or no, you can't go out with that boy. You can simply discuss it and have a conversation and come to an agreement mutually together. So it really is all about relationships. I don't call what I do peaceful parenting. I just call it being alive and having a relationship with my children. Well, that's that's a good perspective because I don't think we should differentiate uh, this in and put it in a special category. It simply um, should be parenting, I would say. But but it, you raise a good point because um, uh, how can we expect ch- children to grow up to be rational um, adult human beings if they've never been treated with rationality? How can they be respectful of others if they've never been treated with respect? And how can they grow up to be peaceful people if they're trying to be um, basically beat into submission? Um, that cannot be the product at the end. Pro- well, it, it, there are people who escape their upbringings, but, uh, but it's obviously much more difficult to do so if that's the only example that's been set. So, I, I mean, it, that raises to my mind the idea that parenting, to a large extent, is setting examples for children and, and treating them in the way that you would hope they, they would uh, eventually learn to treat other people. Exactly, exactly. It, it really depends a lot on who you are as a person. And we hear this over and over again, but I, I wonder how many of us really heed it and really understand it. Children want to be like their role models. And for a good portion of their lives, we are their role models. So they are going to mimic what they say, what they see, rather. So if we are treating other people with disrespect, if we're treating each other uh, as couples with disrespect, if we are... Uh, extraordinarily self-absorbed or if we're extraordinarily mean or violent, they're going to mimic that behavior. If we are violent toward them, they're going to be violent toward us eventually. If we're disrespectful toward them, they're going to be disrespectful toward us. If we don't maintain open communication, we cannot expect them to communicate with us. The important thing to remember is that we can break the cycle. Many of us were raised in an environment where our parents 
did what was done to them and then so they did it to us and some of us uh, experienced abuse some of us experienced disciplinary violence some of us experienced very closed relationships where parents didn't believe that they need to talk to their children it was just about do it because i said to do it and that's the end of it and you have a role and you have chores now if we can make a conscious effort to kind of forgive our parents and then move forward from that and do it differently with our kids, we have to also understand that there is, there is no guarantee of the outcome. We can't say, well, I'm going to be super nice to my kids and everything's going to be perfect and peachy and they're going to grow up to be uh, the savior of the world and they're just going to be this perfect, well-rounded person. That's still a way of us projecting our needs onto the kids and projecting ourselves. We can also say, well, I'm going to be really cool. I'm going to be the coolest mom. I'm going to be the coolest dad. And we're going to talk about everything. And look how cool I am. We're still projecting because we're projecting our need to be cool. It's very hard to really take ourselves out of the equation and say it's about the child. Whatever may happen is going to happen. We have to do the best we could do to maintain a relationship and to kind of steer away from worrying about disciplining them because we don't want to do social engineering that's not what we're out for we're not out for social engineering this is something that i talk about that happens in the school system all the time there is no corporal punishment in most schools unfortunately it still occurs but most schools do not allow corporal punishment anymore but there is still an element of social engineering that's what prison is all about prison is all about disciplinary action social engineering has it worked I, I can't say that the criminal criminal justice system, especially here in the United States, is, is really such a wonderful thing, just like the school system is, is not really working to the children's benefit. So what we want to do is not worry about controlling or determining their behavior, but maintaining an open and honest, respectful relationship with our children. And that's okay to to say, okay, this is not a good idea. I don't think you should do this. It's not a good idea. I, I really want to drive that point home because a lot of parents, they, they go in one direction or the other direction, left or right. Every situation is unique. Every child is unique. There are going to be times as a parent where the child is headed in a dangerous direction and you as an adult know this because you've been alive longer and you will have to stop them or you will have to correct some kind of uh, inappropriate behavior. It's okay to do that and there is a way to do that in a very respectful manner. Once again, Lorette Lynn of UnpluggedMom.com. And so here we are. We see that there are, there is a, an, an absolutely overwhelming statistical and empirical evidence demonstrating the link between early childhood trauma and what happens in later life. And we understand that how that feeds into a society at large, which is itself suffering from types of post-traumatic stress disorder with irrationality and violence and aggression being rampant in society. And we can link those two things together and we can understand the causes. We can also understand what it means to parent in a uh, in uh, a peaceful sense in a non-aggressive non-violent non-forceful non-coercive sense and all of this information is extremely important but there may be people out in the crowd who say well what does this have to do with the corbett report and the types of issues that you talk about certainly there is just a class of people out there who are just 
absolutely the uh, the people who uh, like to believe themselves to be rulers of society and who have the positions of power have the wealth have the the engines to create wealth that uh, that leave them in positions of disproportionate power in society surely you aren't suggesting that the these people would have been turned out any differently if they had merely been parented a little bit better or hadn't been spanked as children well, this is the exact argument that I raised when I was talking to Stefan Molyneux a couple of years ago in a conversation that we had that talked about some of these issues. Well, you have no argument for me that we need to, to raise uh, children in a loving environment and, and, uh, and absolutely eliminate those, those forms of abuse. And you have no argument for me that uh, the state is, is one that functions best when it has a dumbed-down, fear-filled, uh, incapable of reasoning uh, population that, will, uh, that can be scared and herded into, into doing what it, uh, the, the state wants it to do. But uh, you will forgive my incredulity at the idea that there would be no David Rockefeller. David Rockefeller wouldn't be David Rockefeller and wouldn't be concerned about controlling humanity if he had just been raised more lovingly by John D. I just, I, or John II. I just don't, uh, I don't buy that. Well, um, you should uh, look at his childhood. Look at the childhood of, of presidents. I mean, the childhood of presidents is one long, grisly, ugly, horrible series of case studies in, in child abuse. Uh, it's not accidental that these people come from these horrific backgrounds. So you'll notice that I specifically brought up the instance of the Rockefellers, the infamous Rockefeller dynasty, which if you're not acquainted with, please go and to the uh, the back archives of CorbettReport.com to acquaint yourself with the Rockefeller dynasty and the ills that have been perpetrated by them in the name of their quest for uh, their lust for greed and power and control over society at large. And you will obviously detect that I was quite incredulous at the time that there could be anything in the, for example, parental background of the Rockefellers that would have led them to become these types of people. And uh, it, it, certainly they, the, the problems that have been raised by people like the Rockefellers and their ilk who have vast amounts of resources to devote to basically swindling, cheating, robbing, and, and subjecting the public to their, their whims is uh, uh, one of the most sizable problems and questions when it comes to the, the larger question of what's happening in the economy, in uh, politics, in, in uh, the global political and social situation. Does this stem from early childhood trauma? Does this stem from parents who subjected their children to abusive uh, uh, relations and who really did try to impose uh, violence or fraud or coercion on their children? Well, as it turns out, there is evidence that, yes, this is in fact exactly what the case was in the Rockefeller's own household. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on snake oil. The image of the traveling snake oil salesman of 19th century America is by now a familiar trope. It's the image of the heartless huckster who preys upon the trust of the general public to swindle them out of their hard-earned savings. With a bottle of useless tonic and the help of a plant in the audience, the snake oil salesman made a living out of lies and deceit. In these respects, William Levingston was your average snake oil salesman. He used a made-up title, billing himself as Dr. Bill Levingston Celebrated Cancer Specialist, despite being neither a doctor, nor celebrated, nor a cancer specialist. He was an inveterate cheat and liar, having abandoned his first wife and their six children to start a bigamous marriage in Canada at the same time as he fathered two more children by a third woman. And, 
Like every snake oil salesman, he had a cure-all tonic to hawk. He called it rock oil and charged $25 a bottle for it, equivalent at the time to two months' salary for the average American worker. Claiming it could cure all but the most terminal cancers, there were always desperate souls in every town who could be duped into buying a bottle. As near as anyone can tell, rock, rock oil was in fact just a mixture of laxative and petroleum, and had no effect whatsoever on the cancer of the poor townsfolk he conned into buying it. But Dr. Bill didn't have to worry about the consequences when his customers discovered they'd been had. He never stayed in any one place for very long. Yes, in almost every respect, William Levingston was your run-of-the-mill snake oil huckster, someone who had no compunction about preying on the weak and the innocent in his pursuit of wealth and power. There was one thing that set him apart, however. His name was not, in fact, Levingston. That was an identity he had assumed after being indicted for raping a girl in Cayuga in 1849. His actual name was William Avery Rockefeller, and he was the father of John D. Rockefeller, founder of the infamous Rockefeller dynasty. The official histories of the Rockefeller family, many commissioned or approved by the Rockefellers themselves, or produced by public television stations owned and managed by family members, downplay the significance of the dynasty's snake oil lineage. John D., they claim, was the opposite of his father, pious and industrious, where his father had been wayward and lazy, philanthropic and generous, where his father had been selfish and greedy. In reality, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, and John D. learnt a lot from his father. Devil Bill, as the celebrated Dr. Bill Levingston was also known, once bragged that, I cheat my boys every chance I get. I want to make them sharp. The young Rockefeller learnt his lesson well, and by all accounts John was smart, shrewd, and possessed of a maturity beyond his years. From his father's example, he learned how to lie, how to cheat, and how to get away with it, traits that served him well as he rose to become one of the richest men the world has ever known. Well, this is interesting. Certainly, this does not in any way, shape, or form absolve the adults who end up becoming the criminal elements of society, whether they be Rockefellers or merely two-bit criminals, from their personal moral responsibility for the actions that they take. But at the very least, if we are serious about actually getting to the roots of these problems and actually attempting to prevent these types of problems from arising before they even arise, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, or in this case, perhaps a million pounds of cure, then we have to actually examine this type of uh, empirical evidence for the link between early childhood trauma experiences and later uh, criminality. Because ultimately, if we are not addressing these root issues, then we are merely hacking at the branches of the problem and accomplishing, in the end, nothing. Because the true revolution, the real revolution, starts at home in every possible sense, whether that's the solution that presents itself in uh, the economy, whether that means getting self-sufficient and getting off the grid in terms of uh, stopping to, uh, to put your wealth and your investments in the stock markets that are full of the Fortune 500 companies that themselves are part of the military industrial security complex, or whether that means uh, on the health or, or food issues, getting off of the grid and stopping giving your money to big agra and big pharma and starting to source your food and your, your medicines locally and uh, naturally, or, or any of the other myriad things that we talk about here, the solutions always boil down to the personal level and what you can personally implement. And what could be more simple and more uh, immediate to per personally implement than to stop using violence, fraud, and coercion against our children. But 
The question, of course, is whether or not this idea is going to catch on or is catching on with the public at large. Um, even if we have a processed, understood, and internalized the empirical evidence that demonstrates all of these connections, it certainly doesn't mean that, that this is having any effect on society at large. So the question is, what kind of uh, discourse is happening in the societal conversation right now? Is it changing? Are people's attitudes changing? I like to try to remain optimistic, but as I go on to point out in my interview with Stefan Molyneux, uh, I have seen many things online that dispirit me in this quest to, to actually spread awareness of this problem and these issues, because unfortunately there are so many people who will resort to the tired old argument that I was spanked and I turned out okay, so I think the spanking is fine, which as Lynn goes on to point out in the interview, of course, is a completely flawed analogy. Just because you survive a car, car accident doesn't mean that everyone should get in car accidents. So it is a flawed and faulty logic that is used to try to defend and normalize people's childhoods. And for obvious reasons, everyone wants to try to normalize their childhood. No one likes to think of themselves as scarred or damaged in that way. And no one likes to think that they are imposing that kind of violence on their children. So they will stick up for the practices that they've been born in and that they've applied themselves in later life. So it is a very difficult subject to really start to change people's minds and perceptions. But nevertheless, I think that there is room for hope and optimism that the societal conversation is changing little by little, even if maddeningly slowly. Linda in Kansas, you have a comment. I do. Mm -hmm. I think spanking is okay. I think that you should know the difference between spanking and beating. I, I understand, but this research showed that simple spanking is associated with a higher risk of anxiety disorder, mood disorder, substance abuse, personality problems. There it is. There's the research. And it fits with all of our clinical experience. Why do we have people have such trouble with this? They, they're so wedded to spanking. There are always a better alternative to spanking. Always. So why do this to kids if now we have research that shows it adds risk to their mental health? Why? Well, yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I spanked my children when they were little, mm -hmm. and they all turned out to be great people. In, in our society, anywhere from 70 to 90% of parents engage in this kind of behavior. So it's not shocking to me at all. However, it is concerning because uh, I'm convinced that spanking is the wrong way. Any form of hitting a child, whether it be slapping or spanking. You're saying you do it once a week or, or more even. If no, it's working, not more. Maybe I mean, if, if you do it once and it supposedly works, why no, do you have to keep it? But at this point, at two and a half years old, when she's doing certain behaviors, I just look at her and she knows. She stops. I don't need to go to the She's spanking. afraid of you. No, she's not afraid of me. She knows that she'll get in trouble tomorrow. Spanking of the kids. Where you stand? We all got spanked growing up, right? We all got hit. I got spanked. I think growing up, uh, you, if you're at a certain age, you got spanked. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, it's just the way When did that were. end? When did the timeout start? Louie, you uh, have the kids. Uh, I got kids and we don't spank them. I don't so you, you're, 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 you're like the barrier. You're yeah. the generation that got spanked. I know what decided. it did to me. I ain't going to yeah. do it to another kid. It horrified me as a kid. It did I, not help me at all. I don't speak to my father. No, it's <laughs> one of those things really? that, like... They were bad spankies. Then. Yeah, I. There's well, there's something. a difference. This is different. I don't either. Well, it's like I think I remember my dad. He would lecture me first and tell me why he's going to. Which is like torture. That's. Hey, man. Going, Here's why you're getting yep. spanked, and uh, and I remember standing there thinking, the instant I'm old enough, I'm getting the <laughs> away from this man and never seeing him again. <laughs> 
Well, uh, there is room for cautious optimism that the conversation is at least changing, and we can see how the tenor and tone of that conversation has changed over the past generation, and hopefully will continue to do so as more and more people at least begin to understand that inflicting violence on the youngest and most impressionable and most defenseless members of our society is not any possible way to raise up a generation that will then learn to understand that rationality and the use of uh, non-violence and non-aggression in relations with other people is the only way to truly achieve a peaceful and harmonious society. This is all extremely, extremely obvious, extremely common sense, but again, people have been so scarred and so twisted by the abuse that they've been put under as, as children that it really does skew people's thinking on this issue. And there are a lot of people who become defensive about these topics. So it's a very difficult one to broach, but one that nonetheless needs to be broached. Because again, once again, let's stress, the revolution begins at home. And it's very difficult to change what the Federal Reserve is going to do or what's happening on the geopolitical scale or whether or not the NATO proxy armies are going to roll into Damascus and level Syria. But something that we do have 100% direct control over in our own personal lives is the way we choose to raise our own children. And this is something that I hope that people in the audience will at least begin to examine. And of course, I will direct you to the show notes for today's episode where you can find all of the documents cited in today's episode to begin starting that research for yourself. That's going to do it for this week. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again next week. Mom, mom, she's legit. Making us chill when we pitch a fit. Telling us to share and never to hit. If you can't say something nice, put a sock in it. Dad, dad, he's the guy. Never gets tired of playing I Spy. The constant barrage of kids asking why. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.